Welcome to The Art of Change, in-depth interviews with artists from the University of California, Santa Cruz, who believe in the transformative power of art making and who are committed to proactive social engagement. The kind of awakening Maeve has is the awakening that we need, that more people need, to question all of the rules that govern the realities that we think we live in. Dr. Misha Cardenas is Assistant Professor of Art and Design, Games and Playable Media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Misha is writing a new algorithm for gender, race, and technology. Her book in progress, Poetic Operations, proposes algorithmic analysis to develop a trans of color poetics. Cardenas' co-authored books, The Transreal Political Aesthetics of Crossing Realities, 2012, and Trans Desire, Effective Cyborgs, 2010, were published by Atropo Press. Her artwork has been described as a seminal milestone for artistic engagement in VR by the Spike Art Journal in Berlin. She is a first-generation Colombian-American. Her articles have been published in Transgender Studies Quarterly, GLQ Journal of Lesbian and Gay Studies, AI and Society, Scholar and Feminist Online, The Ada Journal of Gender, The New Media and Technology, New Media and Technology, I guess that's a journal as well. Uh, among more others, of course, you can't keep up to date with a bio like this. Thank you so much for joining me here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's quite an honor. You mentioned trans of color poetics. What does it mean? Or why are you using that terminology? Um, yeah, so in short, what it means is the poetics of transgender people of color. Um, so in less short, <laughs> um, I'm, it, so in this book, Poetic Operations, uh, I'm, I'm, so I think the job of scholars and philosophers is to look at this long conversation that's been going on for thousands of years, try to get familiar with that conversation and then add something useful, add something new. Um, and so, um, in this book, I'm looking at art by trans people of color and um, bringing in some theoretical support to think about that art. And a lot of the history of transgender studies, the field of transgender studies, um, is really focused on white transgender people in U.S. contexts. Hence the focus on color in the sense that we're not talking about the traditional way of talking about trans. Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do in this book is add to that conversation by thinking about trans people of color, trans people in non-U.S. context, non-European context, um, black trans women, um, Peruvian transvestites, like all kinds of um, people that are not necessarily the because um, the problem with transgender rights as a as a as a political movement or as a rhetoric is that it ends up being. Um, rights and safety for a very specific transgender subject. So they can be like, yeah, you're safe. If you're white, if you look straight, if you are very normative, sure, you get rights and safety. You're trying to make sure that we address the topic out, not including just that, but including trans in a larger context. And so yes. that's the separation. Is this similar to women of color kind of studies? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it's continuing this history of women of color feminism. Right. Um, and one of my favorite thinkers and authors of all time, Gloria Anzaldúa, was a student here. Um, so part of it's part of why I want to be here. Part of why I keep her picture on my altar. Um, what, what was her field of study? Uh, feminist studies. 
Yeah, I think she might have been in history of consciousness. I should know that. <laughs> um, but very involved. But she was a major figure in women of color feminism. Um, she wrote this book called Borderlands, and um, you know, a big part of that movement was addressing how feminism up to that point was really feminism for rich white women. Um, and so, women of color feminists were like, not only are you not working for our safety and liberation and voice, you're actually harming us. By, by excluding from the conversation? Yeah. The traditional way of excluding marginalized groups, that, yeah. that feeling. So you, you mentioned Borderlines. Why is Borderlines of her books? Like the bridge my, uh, This Bridge My Back or Making um, Face, Making Soul. Mm -hmm. why, why specifically Borderlines? Is Borderlines or Borderlands? I, Borderlands, Borderlands, La Frontera. Yeah. yeah. Um, in Borderlands, Anzaldúa describes something that's still really she does something and describes something that's still really important to me and radical and relevant um she talks about she talks about herself as being somebody who is we might say now gender non-conforming she talks about herself about being mita and mita or like half and half she talks about herself as being able to transform into a serpent sometimes <laughs> um and she talks about the borderlands, like thinking about the U.S.-Mexico borderlands as like a space of knowledge that people that live in this space have access to different kinds of knowledge than other people don't. Yeah. And then extends that to thinking about how people in gender, sexual borderlands. Um, but she just brings together all of these different, you know, what we might think of as intersectionality. She does that in a, in a different way by thinking about a larger space where she's identifying. I mean, she's disabled she's gender non-conforming she's um queer she's latinx um and trying to think about those things all together um but also the form in which she does it is still really challenging to academic contexts where she is mixing um poetry prose autobiography history decolonial theory feminist theory all together in that book from paragraph to paragraph english spanish nawa all these different languages um so she's like saying number one border crossing is a special kind of knowledge that gives you gives you different access to different kinds of knowledge and number two i'm going to demonstrate and perform that border crossing for you on every page of this book okay all right and again her her name is i'll uh, pronounce your last name a-n-z-a-l-d-u-a so she's a, a motive for you, and, and it sounds like a lot of the same, and the work you're doing has a lot of similarities, the same kind of space. You talk a lot about borderlines. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But you do use, um, I've noticed in your writing and in your, in your presentation style and in, in teaching, that you use trans in a different way than I've been raised to think of what trans means. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk a little bit about what do, you, what do you use as the term trans? What does that encompass for you? What does it mean? Um, these are small questions today. <laughs> no, these are, these are great questions. These are great, great questions. Um, well, so there's, there's lots of different ways we could think about it. So I like, uh, Susan Stryker is a, a trans theorist, trans historian. She talks about trans as, um, any kind of gender nonconformity any kind of deviation from the gender you were assigned at birth, she would say is trans. Okay. So I think that's one way we can think about it. But also in Women's Studies Quarterly, she posed a really important question, which is how do we think about trans as an operation or a set of operations? Or I would say like a movement or an action. Um, 
Because like in what queer theory offered us is that we can take the idea of queer and it doesn't just, it's not just like shorthand for gay, but that you could use the word queer as like an operation or as a verb. You could say like, oh, I'm going to queer this, I don't know, glass of water by pouring it on the table. <laughs> or I'm, more generally, it's like queering theory, you know, like breaking down borders or queering gender might be like crossing gender borders. Uh, uh, making it as an example fussy. of what it is to be like, but in an action way. So yeah. in, is that how you're using trans? You're like, you can then make modification to a structure or something and call that trans action. Yes. So, so what I'm trying to do with trans is to think, is to, uh, is to follow up on Susan's question, which is like, what would trans operations be? And to say, okay, so generally what's defined as trans is like, there's some line and you cross that line. So that line might be the line between male and female and you cross that line. Um, I think that's really simplified and boring <laughs> and not real. Um, why? Because there's no line, there's no clear line between male yeah. and female, for one. Right. Um, so the basis of the premise is just not tr true at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, totally. I mean, biologically, there's not. Socially, there's not. The line between male and female is really fuzzy. Yeah. Um, two, because you don't walk across that line. I mean, it's like a years-long process. It happens every day. It happens every second. It, it it's, it's done. It's still happening. It's totally nonlinear. It's like... It's this complicated process. So that is really is really simple to me and has thought, been talked about and thought about a lot. So what I'm trying to do in this book instead is like look at trans artists of color and say, okay, so what are some operations that they're doing that are not just, I walked across the line? Okay, cool. So the, the, what they're producing and creating. Very much like um, women of color. It's not like, it's more, it's, it's much more about the, the whole dialogue in that space that occurs, the, the way of communicating, the way of representing a group of people. So that's the thing that you're kind of focusing on in this book currently. Yes, but yeah. also, I mean, so what I'm focusing on is action over definition. So not trying to focus on objects, but trying to focus on movement and action. What, why? Um, because I think that focusing on definition is boring and limiting. Um, I'm really inspired by also these philosophers, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. They're post-structuralist French theorists. Um, and I have a lot of problems with them, critiques, but they said some really good things. So Deleuze and Guattari said, instead of asking what a body is, we should ask what can a body do? Oh yeah, that is interesting. And that that would produce more interesting questions, more productive questions. And that's part of why I'm interested in their theory, because I'm an artist who also happens to be interested in theory. And I think that critique is not enough. Yeah. A lot of people want to define and critique and break down. Categorize. Yeah. And that is fine. That's, okay. that's not enough for me. I want a theory that helps me do something. Well, let's talk about some of the things you've done. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about Becoming Dragon. Um, okay. This, let's go ahead and pitch this as, um, no one's seen it, anything about it, just how would you describe your project, Becoming Dragon? Uh, well, so I did a performance art piece. It was 365 hours long. I lived in Second Life for 365 hours. Second Life is an online virtual world, like a social VR space, you might say today. It's been around for a long time. It's been around for a long time. When I did it, it was like, you know, on the up and up. Everybody was like, oh, cyberspace is real. Everybody's going to get in Second Life. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit more about Second Life. Just We'll take a detour about Second Life to kind of give the context of what existed that you engaged in. 
Second Life, you create an avatar, a representation of who you are when you first start. Um, and this is looks and uh, species, like lots of choices can be made. And uh, also costuming and things of that nature. And then you are online. I always use as a chat only space where there wasn't voice. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was early on. Mm -hmm. um, would you say it was mostly a chat space where you actually typed to communicate or was it a lot of people using voice? Um, no, yeah, yeah, it was mostly chat. Voice was rare. Right. So it's kind of like a first person shooter, if you will, from that that's what people know of, but a first person world where you saw out of your character's eyes or you could kind of do a isomorphic three back review. Yeah. yeah. It was more often the, the camera above and behind the avatar. Okay. It's okay. Third person. Third person. Thank you. Yeah. Like third person above kind of thing. Yeah. But that character represented you and you can make the character, there's different activities you could have the character do like dance or wave. And there was a few actions you could do. And if you got really good at it, it was kind of impressive how much puppeteering could occur. Yeah. So, and then you see whoever else and they define what they look like and somebody else is defined. Who's building the space? Who, who made the space in Second Life? So that was the thing that was interesting and exciting about Second Life is anybody could build any space they wanted. And um, people dedicated many, many, many hours to building really elaborate cyberpunk worlds, sci-fi worlds, Victorian worlds. Somebody told me there was like a perfect copy of Norway or something, um, which I didn't even go to. I didn't know. I didn't, it's not the most interesting thing to me. <laughs> Um, you know, floating in space, all kinds of worlds. Yeah. Um, so that was, I think, what was interesting, but also was part of the downfall. Too much freedom. Really? People created a lot of weird, kinky stuff. <laughs> and uh, how, how kind of that... drove businesses out. <laughs> oh, so the money went away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting. Okay. So you... But people spend a lot of time in 3D worlds now, right? Like oh. anybody play... Um, wow, I can't believe that I forgot the name of that game. Uh, Fortnite. Anybody play Fortnite? Nobody here plays Fortnite. Oh, come on. Somebody raise your hand for Fortnite. Anybody play social VR? For, I have played Fortnite. Okay, Anybody help. spend any time in online 3D worlds where there are other humans? Wow. Okay, what, there you go. What department is this class in? <laughs> this is not the game. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I've done a little bit of that. I haven't spent a lot of time there. Have you, after, so you were, I'm assuming, spending a lot of time in Second Life and exploring that world prior to your piece? You knew it well? The, I was the at the time, yeah. 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 There were other artists doing interesting performances there. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, so describe, so did you make a space for um, Becoming Dragon? I did, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so the main question about Becoming Dragon was, um, so I wanted to question the one-year requirement of real-life experience that trans people have to go through to get surgery. That is a legal psychiatric medical nexus where it's just an agreement of practices between doctors and psychologists. So I, let's walk through that. Someone says, my body is actually incorrect for my gender. I want to modify myself so I actually match my who I am. And the first step of that is if you talk to a doctor, they say, okay, do that without any modification for one year. Yes. And then after we'll talk. They say, go to a, go to a therapist and have that therapist verify, prove that you're doing that for one year. And then we'll talk. This is without any, you don't get any hormones or anything, nothing, no medical help before that. Um, no, I think you could get hormones before that. Okay. But I mean, those are the standards we're talking about 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Is that so how they changed? I think that they are different now. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that was, you, you were engaged in that more 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah. So, okay. So you were kind of saying you, you didn't, you didn't like that? What do you like? Yeah. About? I wanted to say like, what, 
what the hell is this requirement? What does it mean to live for a woman as a year? Does that mean I have to wear a dress every day? What if I feel like wearing pants? <laughs> does that mean I'm supposed to wear lipstick every day? No, women don't wear lipstick every day. What does it mean to live for a woman as a year? What a ridiculous requirement. And how would a therapist even verify that I was doing that? Are and they going to stay with me? And that comes back to the idea of there's this line between male and female. Yeah. And it's like, that's not really true. Yeah. So, yeah. So I wanted to bring that to attention, mm -hmm. bring like highlight it and spotlight it and call it into question and um, ask this kind of speculative question that was like, could I live in virtual reality for a year and then get my species change surgery? Um, because in Second Life, all these people spent all this time there, hours and hours and hours of their days as like a floating eyeball. And nobody was like, are you truly a floating eyeball? <laughs> nobody really questions the gender of the floating eyeball. They're just like, oh, cool. You're a dragon or you're a robot. That's cool. Okay, great. Or you're a beholder. Or you're a beholder. Yes. <laughs> floating eyeball with a bunch of stocks. Yes. yes. Um, so, so I wanted to ask that question, thinking about futures of gender transition and, uh, and calling into question the existing structures of power that trans people face. Well, I think there's probably a more clear line between human and dragon than between male and female. So, <laughs> how you, so, so you decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and become a dragon, spend a year in Second Life. And I guess a year, an hour in Second Life is a, is a or sorry, an hour in real, in flesh life is in a year in, or a day in Second Life? Is that how it I happens? mean, there's no equivalency like that. It's just that... I wanted to live, uh, the question was, can I live for a year? But, you know, I was trying to finish my MFA and get a job. <laughs> so I couldn't really live for a year. Also, when I started, you know, I was doing research into long-term usage of VR. And at the time, all of the studies were like, long-term usage study, four hours. <laughs> and, uh, you know, extreme long-term usage study, eight hours in a virtual reality headset. And I was trying to propose even 365 hours was a lot. Okay, so we're talking 10 years ago, you weren't using the Oculus Rift. What oh, would you no. use as the headset? No, I use this, um, I think it's called like a Z-Imagine headset. Um, Two screens, one for each eye? Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, it was stereoscopic, yeah. But the field of vision was not as good as Oculus. I mean, it was almost $3,000 and it was not very good compared to what we do today. So you put that on and then um, headphones as well to try to get Second Life as a primary audio source? Uh, no, I didn't wear headphones. Okay. Speakers in the room? Speakers in the room, yeah. But you asked, did I build something in Second Life? Yeah, yes. so I was in this kind of uh, research space slash gallery, part of the Center for Research in Computing and the Arts at UC San Diego. So it was sort of like a black, a small black box studio, okay. black box theater room. And uh, so with all these motion capture cameras uh, and um, computers and stuff. And so I made a copy of that in Second Life. So that when I moved around that room, my avatar would move around the room in Second Life. Okay, so you had some some pretty special tech for 10 years ago in the sense that you weren't using your keyboard to move yourself, your avatar around. You right. were being tracked and your avatar moved as if you did. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I, I did my undergrad degree in computer science. I, wor I worked with two <laughs> other programmer artists. Yeah. And so we wrote a motion capture interface for Second Life. And, and then for made a different client build. Second Life is an open source project, yes. so you'll do that? Yeah. Very cool. I kind of want to dive into the tech on that, but we won't do that right now. Um, so uh, that sounds, that's, that makes sense to my mind, mm -hmm. except you've got a few problems. 
you're not the size of a dragon, nor do you have the body morphism of a dragon. So what did you map to the dragon's body? How did you fit the dragon in a space that you, like if you sat in a chair, the dragon couldn't sit in a chair. Like what, what would you do there? Uh, I mean, it was awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, over time, oh, it was about a little over 15 days. So over time, I be began to get this proprioception that's like, oh, I need to move slowly because I'm going to smack you with my tail. Because people would say like, um, you're standing on top of me, please move. Um, oh, cool. So that did, happened. Did wait, What word did you use that, that started to occur? Proprioception. Does that mean that you actually started feeling like you had that size body? Uh, a, a, a little bit, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, proprioception is like the kinds of perception, like balance um, that are not so conscious. Yeah, the sort of sense of where your body is. Wow. Okay, I, I want to ask about the headset being on your so eyes. So anyway, the mapping was imperfect. The best part of the mapping was the uh, head tracking on the headset moved the dragon's head. Okay. Yeah. That's an important one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't have wings, so it's hard to move those by yeah. mapping. Yeah. yeah. Would have been nice. Yeah. What, what style of dragon did you choose? Did you build the dragon? Did you design the dragon? No. So part of why I picked a dragon was um, I wanted to have a body that was out, that was not easily gendered male or female. Um, I also wanted to have a body that was not human because it was common in Second Life and just something I wanted to challenge. Um, and when I went to the Isle of Worm in Second Life, this whole island full of dragons, it was like one of the most interesting experiences to me anywhere in Second Life. I was like, here's a bunch of people who are really committed to spending their t days as a dragon, like hours and hours and hours, and who have like modeled not only dragon avatars that are really detailed and have different breath weapons and all of these things, um, but also like spaces that are dragon sized eggs. They had like an egg ritual. I had to go to the egg ritual to get my dragon avatar. Um, it was weird and awesome. Um, and also dragons. Uh, I think some of the mythology about dragons is that they're shapeshifters. Yeah. So that appealed to me. I think it was an interesting choice because if you do try to become like a dog, like we dog or cat where a lot of people here are familiar with those kind of animals um the idea that you'll actually be able to think like them or whatever is is uh mostly your own interpretation of that experience yeah and it's not really about them yeah. but a dragon's cool because well a dragon could kind of think like us i mean they're mythical so great yeah so that's a good choice i think it's good i think my daughter was like well unicorn could also do that and i was like well like, dude can you talk is unicorn it's kind of horse mouth you know? <laughs> so anyway okay cool i like that you did dragon as a thing okay let's talk about the feeling like did you take breaks did you sleep did you go to the bathroom did you do that all in that room or did you what do you do there you know so I was I was studying performance art. I was definitely like, this is a performance art piece. I've seen durational performance art pieces where artists poop in a bucket. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. That would make every conversation be about the stink in the room. <laughs> and I just thought that was not appealing. I didn't want to ask my collaborators to deal with my uh, bodily functions. Right. You didn't have so the funds to install a bathroom in the room. Didn't have the funds to install a bathroom. Yeah. So I did take breaks to go to the restroom yeah. and I also took off the headset for sleeping because um, I didn't want to break it. It wasn't yeah. that, it was not very sturdy. Um, also in retrospect, uh, now I can admit freely that I, I love Dungeons and Dragons. So it doesn't surprise me that I chose to be a dragon. You, you, you can admit that now. Why couldn't you admit that earlier? I mean, I, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, but then by the time I was doing my MFA, I didn't really have anybody to play with and I wasn't playing anymore. And it seemed, you know, something nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, are you playing it again now? Now I have like a real good crew of people to play D&D with here at, at UC Santa Cruz. UC yeah. Santa Cruz. Yeah. Now that I'm in the games program. Yeah. It's and great. Are you using the most recent edition that actually has a dragon uh, lineage character? Yes, totally. Yeah. Fifth edition. Yeah. I'm adding myself as a, a Dungeons Dragons player as well. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So what did it do to your eyes to look at these like cheap, bad screens for that much time? Was it? It was it bad. It, it was bad. Yeah. Yeah. It hurt. Um, I mean, basically over time, you know, my eyes were getting adjusted to being focused right here. Yeah. Really close uh, to your face. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of days of that and I would go to the bathroom and pretty much the hallway was really blurry. Everything was blurry. How long did it take to recover from this? Um, it took a few days yeah. to get my vision back to normal. Would you do it but again? But I had read some studies about psychological studies about things different lenses people had tried on people and how their vision went back to normal over time so i was like sounds okay to me do you <laughs> sounds like you were younger i mean i <laughs> i don't know if i put my body through much right now but um do you have you paid attention to the vr space and how much better the gear has gotten has it mm -hmm. been interesting to you it has you know when i was done with becoming dragon i was like i am done with vr i'm so over this i don't want to use vr anymore and I never thought that it would be coming to something mass market. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, I'm not sure that it has yet. I mean, no, it's, we there's the some adoption. And, yeah, not much. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Sorry. Well, I mean, there's some adoption, but I think there's a lot more marketing than use. And also, they're still not that, I mean, they're dramatically better than they were 10 years ago, but they're still a kind of awful experience. I have a PSVR. And I never, I rarely ever use it because it's such a pain to have this giant heavy thing on my head. Yeah. Let's, let's query the students again. Who here has used, a, like put a VR headset on? Okay, I would say 80% of the class. And who here owns one of the VR or, you know, in a family owns it? Not very many own them. Yeah, a lot more talk than, than usage. Why do you think that is? Well, like I said, it's still not... It's just the hardware, just that? Yeah, the hardware. Yeah, it's still really uncomfortable and difficult to get into. And, you know, that little barrier of like, oh, I got to put this heavy thing on my head. I mess up my hair now. <laughs> um, and also the, the, the just the lack of a social component. Like, um, you know, you're really mostly, even if you're going to do it with friends, you're going to be mostly isolated from your friends all of a sudden. Yeah. Seems to me like a big problem. Right. When I want to relax, I don't think, what I want to do is put a bucket on my head. <laughs> when I want to relax, I just want to like sit and relax. <laughs> when, the, when the Oculus first, first came out, I was here in the digital arts and media program. And I got a unit and passed it around to people. And what I found fascinating is this idea that you put it on them and they have this experience, which is internal and all that. And if they say, you know, I'm in a space. Wow, the space is beautiful. And everybody else in the room is like, now you're blind. You're like, you're not mm -hmm. really engaging us. This idea of separation is pretty powerful. Yeah. That is, to me feels like, I mean, I guess that's true if you go into your private space and you get on your computer, it's very similar and that you're not engaged in the world. Mm. But the, the removal of the physical presence is, is strange to me in VR. All right, let's move on to another piece of yours, Transborder Immigrant Tool. Describe this. Well, first off, was there anything else about Becoming Dragon that you wanted to address? Uh, let me ask you a question about it. Do you think it achieved your goal 10 years, looking back at it 10 years ago, 10 years later? Well, so my goal as an artist is to open up questions. So I do think it achieved that goal. Sure. Yeah. 
um, I think that uh, I, it's funny that you the, the going to the bathroom in the bucket is not the question you wanted to be answered. So that's why you removed it. I think it's a selective <laughs> question raising is a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I still think that futures of gender and embodiment transition are still really open and, and still really very much in question. So I think that's part of why that piece continues to be relevant. Um, I mean, I'm still showing it in museums, uh, not this month, but, but uh, last year. <laughs> the documentaries of it? Um, well, the videos, the prints, the the headset, yeah. You're not installing. You're not doing it. You're not running it. No. Yeah. Have yeah. you had anybody else run it? No. Um, that when I the when I the summer I got here, the Vector Festival asked me to redo it in Montreal, and I was like, no. <laughs> you live for 15 days in a VR headset. Ask, see how much money you want for that. No. Um, I but I did uh, reperform all the poems for them, and got an update, updated dragon avatar, which is much better. One of the most interesting things to me about becoming Dragon was that was totally unexpected um, that I'm happy about because I mean I try to do artwork like I said to ask important questions and to like learn something new about those questions. It was really interesting to me how many people came to me in Second Life and were dealing with like very serious life issues around species change transition that I had not expected at all. I met people who were like, "I am a fox." I am absolutely certain I have a tail. It hurts me when I sit on it. And because of this, I have like a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, and other people like there's a part of the video where you see this like wolf person. Somebody came in and was like, no, no, no. I, that's my, my true self is really a wolf. Or somebody was like, uh, my true self is really a dragon. Absolutely. Perfectly seriously. Yeah. And I was not expecting that. Why not? I don't know. I just, I guess I hadn't thought about it. I was trying to be speculative. <laughs> yeah. I think 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought of that either. But now you actually know, like, you, that you exist, you understand that people exist that have that experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's more. Also, like, I knew people at the time that were using language to describe their gender because they were trying to get out of the gender binary. Mm -hmm. So I had, like, a good friend who was like, my gender is bunny. And I was like, great. I respect that. That's fine. I, wonderful. But, because I had, that were, person didn't mean like I actually should have ears and a tail. <laughs> right. It was just it was just using that metaphorically to mean not your binary, but yeah. something else. Yeah. It's a good way to you know, take advantage of. Does that is that still common in, in a way of describing gender to to create new words for it? I don't know. I don't think so. I think that now people like you know, now that they was like on the cover of time and like non-binary is a legal category in California, I think there's a lot more space for people to just say I'm not male or female. I'm something else. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on to transborder immigrant tool. This I'll describe it and then you correct me. Does that sound good? Sure. All right. So um, when people cross the border, it's very easy to get in a situation where you don't have enough water because it's this massive desert and you have to hide. And so there's not support systems. In fact, there's aggressively people trying to stop you and detain you. So the idea is that there are organizations that produce water caches and put them out there so that Hopefully, some people won't die because they did find water, which would be, would be the goal. And your project with a group of people were to take cell phones, remove the cell service aspects so they couldn't be tracked, use GPS, which is just a receiving thing that gave you location, and then somehow get map information of these very secret water caches onto the phone, and the app help you get to those water caches. Is that a good synopsis of what the project was? Yeah. I didn't add poetry. Why don't you describe the poetic part of it? 
Yeah. Um, well, so the project was to take recycled cell phones and see if we could help people find water in the U.S.-Mexico border or in other borders. Um, and also to provide not only physical sustenance, but poetic sustenance, because people need spiritual sustenance as well. They need more than water. So Humans are complicated. Humans are complicated and wonderful. So we made this app for cheap Nextel cell phones, uh, and uh, we made a map of water caches in the border. And so the app would guide you to the closest source of water in the in the desert of the U.S.-Mexico border. And it would give you the option to hear poetry as you were traveling. And of the audio, not reading, but hearing it? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did you voice that? Um, I voiced some of them, yeah. Okay, so I got so many questions about this project. Um, not the technical side of it, except the idea that you are collecting information that needs to be extremely secret. Because, of course, there is a police force out there that if they knew where the location of the water was, they would... I mean, sometimes these people actually poison the water. So people die if this water is found out by the wrong person. Mm -hmm. But you want to be able to give this as freely as possible to the right people. How do you determine who gets this and who doesn't get it? Did you have border agents that got your phone and started walking to find caches? Uh, no, we did not have that because we never publicly released it. Uh, it was conceptual in some sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, so... There's a, yeah, so it, we were in San Diego. So we started with Border Angels, which is an organization in San Diego, a uh, really Christian based organization that puts water caches out in the desert. And um, that was well, part of why they invited me, was because I was doing a lot of border activism. And they were like, well, you could be the like liaison with the social movement. Um, like I knew Enrique. So, um, so I met Enrique, with. Who's Enrique? Enrique Morones was the founder of Border Angels. Sorry. Um, so yeah, so I met with them and I was like, we'd like to do this art project where we make an app that will guide people to the water. Um, do you have a GPS map of the water or do you have a map of the water? They're like, no, it's in my head. And I was like, okay, so can we go with you and make a GPS map? And they were like, yes, yes, you can make a map of these water caches, but you cannot distribute it to anyone. Um, because like you said, um, people yes. like the Minuteman, right wing, anti-immigrant people, literally find the water caches and replace them with antifreeze or other uh, poison them in other ways. Um, Has anybody been prosecuted for poisoning water like that? I, not that I know of. Um, so, yeah, well, so what we did was I'm glad to, to hear you didn't release it because this is exactly the problem I have with it. It feels, yeah. it feels something wrong in adding that in doing that. Yeah. Even though it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So sorry, go on. Um, well, so again, I mean, so it's an art project. We we're opening up questions and, you know, in a, and as a collective group, so there were, it was me, it was this group called Electronic Disturbance Theater 2. So it was Ricardo Dominguez, Brett Stahlbaum, Amy Sarah Carroll, myself, and Ellie Mermont. And you're still involved with this group, yes? Um, a little bit. We yeah. do publications. We just did a publication about Don Haraway's work. Um, so um, what was I saying? Uh, why didn't we release it? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, so we made a working prototype of it. Oh, what I was saying was there were different opinions in the group, right? So for Brett Stahlbaum, Brett was the coder. He was the one who already was making art where he was like, let's come up with algorithmic hike paths. And Ricardo was the artist who was more doing online civil disobedience and was like, let's take your hiking app and apply it to the border. And um, they had very differing opinions. 
Brett was like, if it doesn't save someone's life, then we wasted our time. And Ricardo was like, it's a speculative project in the future. It's the best thing we could do is to like imagine possible futures. Yeah. I think in retrospect, the best thing that we did was to open up dialogue. Um, I mean, it, it, it made a lot of right-wing people angry. Um, and because uh, you're helping people do illegal thing. Is that the general pitch of that? We could say that, or maybe because they hate brown people. Um, there's lots of different reasons why we might say they were angry. Why do people want to stop immigration? I think it's a complex question. I think, you're, I think it's true. Sorry, sorry, I flippantly said that. It's okay. <laughs> Certainly they said it was because we were helping people break the law. Yeah. yeah. So then three right-wing Republican congressmen wrote to the chancellor and said we were guilty of the felony of enticing immigrants across the border. Um, and so then there were invest three investigations, a federal and a police and a UC police investigation. Um, and there were lots of news stories. So by this point, there was like a Vice story, a Fox story, there were then, and then there were all the AP story, and then there were all the syndicates, right? So right. that means that there were like hundreds of news stories copying the AP story. So if you want to get the dialogue out, it worked. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that to ask, most importantly and fundamentally to me, that project is about asking, if somebody is dying of thirst in the desert, should you give them water? Or should you ask them for their papers? I mean, it's pretty clear to me what's the answer. <laughs> um, and I hope that we helped bring out that dialogue and that question to a lot of people. Would you want that app to exist? Well, the funny thing was, you know, so in some of the news interviews, maybe even the Fox News interview, they're interviewing the Border Patrol and they're like, are you afraid that Al-Qaeda is going to get their hands on this tool? And uh, the Border Patrol response was, we know that migrant people use GPSs all the time. They have cell phones. Why would they not be using GPSs? This is not even news to us. It may be news to you. <laughs> um, and that to me was another effective part of that project is what are the stereotypes that people have about immigrants that they would think that it, migrant people don't have cell phones. Yeah. And many people, even left-wing activists and radicals said to us, poetry. Why poetry? People don't need poetry when they're in the desert. And I'm like, again, really? Who do you think is crossing the border? What is your stereotype about these people that you think that they don't need poetry? Or that poetry wouldn't help them keep walking? I think it's interesting because I, I definitely, it seems like a scary adventure to try to cross the border. And I think that last on my list would be reading material. Um, so I can see that case, not about you know what the classification of the person is but more of like what would i want i think the water thing would be more important on the list <laughs> but how long does it take to cross the border how long are people doing this i don't know because I, I i when i go on trips i bring reading material like <laughs> obviously yeah, yeah. i'm not on the top of the thing but i'll throw it in the bag i i vaguely know that it would be multiple days yeah yeah i um, think it, it depends also which part of the border you're trying sure. to cross where you're what you're trying to get to yeah what about battery life these phones really good. So battery. battery life was a main problem. And, you know, <clears throat> again, we were thinking about how to ask questions um, and how to start conversations. Um, and, you know, over time, battery life became one of the biggest problems because we were like, well, on one hand, we, I, we want, we're trying to think about kind of aesthetics or poetics of safety and how we as artists could spend our time actually trying to make 
more safety for people um, or make migrant people or immigrants make them safer? How could we do that? On the other hand, there's the, the like practical realities, like the battery life wasn't with those, <clears throat> those, we wanted to use these cheap phones because we wanted to buy a bunch of them and distribute them. Right. If they're not in people's hands, they're not, they don't work. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, but cheap phones have crappy battery life when you're using the GPS. So the, the, the transport immigrant tool would never last more than a couple hours. Right. So Brett started describing it as like a sort of a last mile tool. Yeah. yeah like turn it on really, it. Yeah. yeah. If you're really at the end, then you can try to turn this on and find some water. All right. But I would say one more thing about the poetry. I mean, my collaborators are so brilliant. Amy Sarah Carroll is an amazing award-winning poet. And she wrote like three different series of poems for the tools. But one of my favorite things about that project that continues to inspire me is she wrote a series of poems where she read desert survival manuals and then encoded them into poetry. So she wrote like poems about what kinds of cacti have drinkable water versus what kind of cacti are poisonous because some of them will harm you. She wrote poems about how do you identify north in the desert? Well, there's certain flowers that are going to lean to the north. Um, she wrote poems about how to collect dew from succulents in the morning. Because if you, you know, get a few drops of water, it might help you keep going. So um, well, I love that. Encoding knowledge into stories, fundamental. It's a, it's a good history. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. Were yeah. they good? Did you enjoy the poems? Even if you weren't going to be in, in the desert? I did. Yeah. She's a great writer. Yeah. All right, I want to move on to another passion of yours from what I can tell. And I think I'll introduce that by just asking you to describe Maeve's first experience on Westworld and who Maeve is. Oh, yeah. Um, so Westworld is this, uh, well, it was an old movie, I think, from the 70s. Uh, and they made it into a recent HBO show. Has anybody seen it? Raise your hand. Okay, half the people have seen it. Um, I've seen it. Yeah, I love this show. Um, it's about like a theme park with realistic human androids. Um, Maeve is a sex worker, black woman, android. Um, her first, I don't know, I don't remember her first experience. The awakening but, experience is what the thing I'm thinking about. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love how philosophical the show is, right? So at the very beginning of the first episode, it's not Maeve, but what's the blonde woman's name? Anybody uh, know the blonde woman's name? Yeah. Dolores. Dolores, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the beginning, yeah. Dolores mm -hmm. is opening her eyes. The tech is talking to her and is asking her, um, you know, uh, like technical evaluation questions to make sure her AI is running properly. And uh, he's asking her questions like, um, have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Have you ever thought that your life was not real? And... I mean, just, I immediately drew me in so much. I was like, yes, <laughs> let's talk about that. I love that. I, I like the idea that if, if, if she has, if she has questioned those things, then she, there's a malfunction. Right. So then we all have malfunctions, right? Yeah. That's what we do. <laughs> totally. So Maeve, um, the sex worker, black uh, android, she had, we, wa we watch her, through the story. this is a bit of spoiler alerts for, for Westworld. Sorry, spoiler alert. Yeah, pause and go watch that. I should have like a horn or alarm or something to warn people. Um, she has this experience of actually like switching from I'm in a in the world that's real to oh, what's really real? What we've known the entire time that she's an android and what the world is and such. And you you do talk a bit about that experience. So describe why it connects to you with you. Um. Mm. 
Well, many reasons. Um, so, I mean, I taught this show alongside Judith Butler in one of my classes at University of Washington and oh, uh, at University of Washington. And um, I loved having the experience of students putting together the way the idea that like we're programmed to follow certain gender rules and then to see it enacted by these actors pretending to be androids on screen. And I loved this experience of having students literally say out loud, like, was I just programmed to be a man? Am I just following my, my programming that says that I'm supposed to be a woman? And then to like possibly have some little opening of questioning the way those social norms like yeah. rule our lives. Yeah. I think um, that's a, that, that, that idea of why you act the way you act is a great one to share with people. Like when you're like cisnormative and you are, you know, attracted to the opposite gender or something, just ask yourself why? And like, do you control that? You know, that experience of getting that, oh, it's, there's a programming happening here. Yeah. Um, is a, a really eye-opening thing to do. So you like that because you were able to show in a large class of students, the show that they all liked, this really interesting question that really affects who they are, makes them question themselves. Yeah, and you know, that was part of what I was trying to say in my book, The Trans Real. Like, well, if you want to think about crossing to a new reality, well, <laughs> talk to trans people. Because there is this reality that governs so much of our lives that some people think is absolutely real and inviolable and you cannot violate the and, truth. And it's never really even questioned by them. Yeah. And totally, yeah. 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 And there's and a mean, lot of passion behind that argument. There is, yeah. I mean, um, my parents are pretty conservative. They're both Catholic. My dad's Colombian. Um, it was very clear in my upbringing, like men are supposed to be the breadwinners. Women's job is to like have men pay for things for them. <laughs> um, and that was very violently enforced. So, and so it was very much a reality that should not ever be questioned. When you question it, was it like Maeve's experience? When you were conscious of questioning it, I should say? Um, I guess I do relate to that part. Yeah. That like some kind of awakening. And I mean, it's, I'm sure it's really different for people now than it was um, when I was 29. So 13 years ago, I started transitioning. Um, I mean, now, you know, there's like trans superstars, there's the cover of time, there's all this stuff. People introduce gender pronouns in classes. Like there's so much more dialogue that I feel like every time we ask in a class, like what's your name and pronoun, we're basically inviting people to be like, to find who they choose are. Choose your gender. Yeah. Now, choose your gender right now. What is it? <laughs> um, which I think is beautiful and amazing and, and problematic and challenging and all those things. But 13 years ago, it was really different. It was like, oh, there's this reality that everybody in this room takes for granted and has never questioned or never thought about violating. And for me, it's just like totally gone. It's not reality at all. I don't have to be that, that thing that people told me my whole life I had to be. It could be something completely different. How much time did it take for you to get to that space? Do you mind if we dive, uh, dive into your questions about you personally like this? Uh, no. Feel free to I'll stop let you know me. when I mind. Okay, good, good. Um, <laughs> well, I'll try not to get to the point where you mind, but um, I, 29, that's, yeah. you're a pretty functioning adult by 29. Yeah. Um, I thought I was too old to transition. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you had some judgment about the time period? 
Yeah. 29, 29 you're pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not true at all. For me. Not really. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I want, I, I want to get this idea that you, you had some kind of like that, that it was an awakening period. Is that, is that a good way to describe it? The, the experience of going, oh, wow, I don't have to be this thing I'm forced to be. Yeah, I think so. That's what I try to argue in my essay, The Android God is the Manifesto, is that the kind of awakening Maeve has, the awakening that we need, that more people need, to question all of the rules that govern the realities that we think we live in, like the law, the rules of the university, the things that say you should be sitting there and I should be up here on a stage talking, that we should question all of those rules, every single rule in our life that, that people say is reality, that we should be like, no, actually, I'm, maybe those things are not reality. Maybe what you told me I'm supposed, my whole life is, is a lie. Is that a transaction, if you will? Mm. Questioning that? I would say so. Yeah. The questioning can be an action. That's good to know. Um, I, mean, I, agree, I agree with you. I think the questioning is a big part of action in some ways. I, and another part of why Maeve's story appeals to me so much is because she basically becomes a hacker. So again, sorry about the spoilers, but um, Maeve, uh, Maeve's, Maeve's the one that realizes what's going on around her and then realizes, oh, I can actually change my own code or my own programming. Um, and, and she does that to amazing effect. And she manipulates humans that help her do it. Yeah. yeah. I, I wish the show wasn't as violent as it was. It's hard to take, but it has some great pieces in it as well. It's really hard to watch. I have to look away a lot in that show. Yeah. And but I what I appreciate about it is what I said in the, again in the Android Goddess essay. Sorry to be that 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 academic that's quoting myself. <laughs> but um I mean I think the show makes perfectly evident in the first five minutes um what is virtual reality for? What would be something well something like human androids, what would it be for? For men to enact fantasies of raping women. And murdering people. And murdering people. Because that's what we actually see right off the bat. Yeah. And that's why the world exists, so people can go do that. Yeah. Which, on some sense, is like, oh, this speculative, scary thing. In another sense, is our everyday reality. Just look at the games industry today. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, a lot of it is. Yes. When you take a percentage of the finances invested in it, it's that. You can look at it from a financial perspective. There are other games. I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss all games as that, but there is a bit of violence and... and fictitiously making people suffer, which is a very odd way to think about it. Um, so we, so I think it is interesting to think about, like, don't even think about the androids having a soul or a self-identity or a consciousness at all. Just who is the kind of person that would do that to even something that's not suffering. Right. That would want to do that. Uh, right. That's an interesting, interesting problem. I, I want to get back to what was the transfer like when Maeve transformed she's able to to hack her world have you in your transformation at, at 29 um is this engagement of your art form a transformation of her world is it is there is there a lot of corollary there i think i i guess so yes what do you think about stability and deciding that the system in place i recognize i should question it but i'm also going to play the game like not sitting in the audience today and actually coming up on here. What do you what do you think about like paying attention to those norms and accepting them? Is that okay or are we doing something wrong by playing the game that is making people suffer? Um 
No, I think that's to the most for the most part necessary. Um, because if you if you if you do want to create change, then you do have to play the game to some extent, or you do have to accept the some limits of society. Like, if you really wanted to call into question the way education is done today, the hierarchy of, um, you know, a few people talking in the banking model that Paulo Freire talked about, right? The hierarchy of a few people talking and most people listening quietly sitting down. The best way to make that change would not be to just like stand up today and storm up here on stage because you and I are not in charge of higher education. <laughs> right, right. Um, so you would have to think about you know, do what the brilliant grad students on this campus are doing is identify, analyze the system, analyze the system to your best of your ability. Find that one point where you might have some power, mm -hmm. where you might be able to make a change and, and, and focus your energy there. For the benefit of people that aren't in the room that might listen to this conversation, what are the brilliant uh, uh, grad students doing? Um, the grad students, many of the grad students on campus are on strike, on a wildcat grading strike. So last quarter, they... Wildcat means not endorsed by unions. Is that kind of a Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Means it's not with the union. So yeah. So at the end of last quarter, they said, we're not getting paid enough to live here. Um, so please pay us more. And we're not going to give you your grades until you pay us more. And I think that's an example of them analyzing the situation seeing how much power they have and putting some pressure on that one point. I love that we are talking about this with the Arts Division Administration here and the Dean actually hosting us um, <laughs> because it feels like a very dangerous thing to do in the sense like, is this the right place to have this conversation? But that is kind of what your work does, right? Is pushes those, those spaces that does break down and make people uncomfortable. Mm, yes. My goal is not to make people uncomfortable, but I mean, something that I learned from women of color feminists is to always bring the conversation into this room. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, we want to talk about smashing the patriarchy. We want to talk about, <clears throat> you know, ending racism. Like, it's fine. It's fine and dandy. We can all just be comfortable and happy and theoretical. Just sit here and talk about it in the abstract. White fragility, intersectionality, big words. We can throw them around. But... Like, really, I think we can make change often by being like, how are those things happening right here in this room? Because they are. Why do you use androids as a way of talking about this? Oh, man. Um, so I'm trying to like shift something major in my work. So with Poetic Operations, with a lot of my work in the last like 10 years, <clears throat> this is a really fun and wonderful conversation. Thank Ooh, you. Meta, thank you. Thank you for um, saying so. I'm enjoying it as well. With a lot of my work, I've been really focused on ending the murder of trans women of color because I feel like that's a specific population. The number of the amount of violence against us continues and continues to increase and very little attention is paid there. Um, but now I've been now that I'm finishing that book, <laughs> I'm thinking about other things. And really what's really coming to my attention is climate change and thinking about how um, you know, if we all just keep living our lives the way we are, doing the things that we're doing, everything continues as normal, we're all going to die very soon. And um, all the trans women of color will be dead. And I don't want that. 
Um, so it seems to me like I need shift to think about larger things. Um, so what I'm trying to, the reason androids come to my attention and just like watching Westworld and being inspired by Westworld is thinking about like the way we treat inanimate objects or, you know, androids, uh, AI, whatever, or computers, um, says something about who we are, shapes who we are, reflects who we are. And that I think that if you want to pretend to run around and shoot people and assault women all day, uh, then that does, there's, there's studies that show, but also my belief is that does have some effect on who you are. Um, and so I think the androids are a good example of an object that's sitting there saying like, please be kind to me. <laughs> please let me be part of your human club. And in Westworld, a lot of what they receive is violence. So what I'm trying to say is that if our ethics are just based on the human, they're not enough and we're not going to survive. And I'm not just making that up, but looking at other scholars like Don Haraway, like how I mentioned before, who's Professor Emeritus here, really inspiring person for me, um, but also um, lots of indigenous scholars like Robert Warrior, who were talk talking about this, that if our ethics are just based on similarity, they're just based on, I'm going to be kind to you because you're like me, then that's not enough. We're not really going to get by. If our ethics don't include being kind to the trees and the water and the soil, or the future generations we'll never meet. We don't know if they're like us. Yeah. Yeah. Misha, thank you so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So any questions for Misha at all is great. And I will ask first if we don't have one. All right. Yeah. Okay, good. We'll wait. Please start with your name, too. My name is Rachel. And my question is, since you mentioned that you transitioned later than many people do do you were you engaged with the arts prior to that and if so how did your experience as an artist change um hmm. uh that's that's a good question um i mean i i guess no i wasn't um what were you doing in your late 20s? <laughs> um, I was working as a software engineer and uh, the war in Iraq was starting. So I was doing a lot of activism to try to stop the war. Um, protesting, marching, getting arrested, everything I could try to do to stop the war. You weren't putting that in, you weren't putting that in the art context though. But no, you were making, I wasn't. making change. Okay. Um, but then I went on to doing media activism because I felt like, okay, I'm one person marching in the street, but if I like make a podcast about this march, then more people might see that. So um, when I was working on this pirate radio station in San Diego, I met this artist, Ricardo Dominguez, and I was like, oh, this guy's figured out how to do art and technology and activism all together and get paid for it and get paid to travel and talk about it. I want to do exactly what he does. Um, so before that, like, um, I was interested, I had done some like web design or like writing poetry. I had done that. Yeah. Um, but not in art in like a professional sense. Hi, my name is Ari. Um, so you've been talking about necessity and how there's more than just a physical necessity. There's also a spiritual necessity. Um, so how do you, how do you think your experience with gender and identity would be if you hadn't engaged in art like do you think do you think it's kind of like 
required as a human to like really engage with that? Uh, hmm. That's a hard question. I don't know. Um, I mean, no. I try to. I try to avoid prescriptive ethics. So, no. I don't think there's anything required to be a human. I think there's an infinite diversity of humans, and they should do what they want. But, um, yeah. yeah. Do you have a follow-up question on that? You want to keep? I feel like. Do you want to clarify? Yeah. Do you want to clarify your question, Ari? Ari. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Do you want to? You, was that what you wanted to hear? I, I'm I'm curious. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, um, but I guess. Well, okay. Um, maybe a better question would be. So it is personally helpful for you, like as a person. What What makes it important for you, like? Art like practice. What's the important? Yeah, of like yeah. spiritual necessity, like with the poetry. I guess is what I was thinking about. Great. That yeah. question makes more sense to me. Yes. Um, thank you. Uh, it's my art my relationship to art has changed over time a lot um, a lot of times my artwork starts with poetry most of the time my artwork starts with poetry most of the time poetry comes when I am so broken and sad that I don't have the words to write prose um, and um, so that's where a lot of my artwork starts with. Um, so in that sense, poetry then is kind of therapeutic, uh, helps me, you know, Audre Lorde said poetry is not a luxury, which Amy Sarah Carroll quoted a lot when we talked about the transporter immigrant tool. Audre Lorde was an important black feminist. Um, and yeah, I relate to that. Um, I often write out of like a necessity. Uh, or feeling that like I have to get something out. I don't know how to get it out. And um, and, and when you're in that space, you you said you can't do prose. Like it's harder to do prose, or yeah. it's not something that comes to you. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Some things are just overwhelming and unbearable, and I I I don't I don't think of them in like a logical way. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy to put that into some kind of logical structure or something. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. But over time, uh, I would say I've tried to make my artwork be something that's more healing for me. Um, so nowadays, I more consciously try to bring that to like the ways that I'm practicing art. Um, but I don't think that any of those things are necessary to be an artist or, or even things that most artists do. Um, a lot of artists are just engaged in material experiments or conceptual experiments and um, are not necessarily trying to do something from their deepest soul. Maybe it's, it might even, a lot of artists might even say it was very cliche that what I just said. <laughs> um, but it is a part of how I work. So going back, oh. Your name? My name is Enrique. Um, going back to what you were saying about virtual reality being kind of a means to commit fictitious violence <laughs> with indie games such as, Undertale, for example, that bring up the question of morality as a choice for the player. How much do you think video games are violent solely because of the older generations who created them having their own personal worldview of violence? Yeah, that's a great question in which if you took the 
critical history of video games class, which some people in this room did. We talked about that question all quarter. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Undertale is great. And uh, Can you describe Undertale? I don't know it. Undertale is a like low-res kind of RPG game. I've played it on Switch, but it's on other platforms. And um, it's kind of like an interesting take on fantasy role-playing games where um, you get into battles, um, but you don't have to kill anybody to win the game. Um, and I, I think you're rewarded for not killing people. And it's sort of cute and funny. And it's sort of like, oh, what if we had like a whole game like Zelda, original Zelda, where you didn't have to kill anybody? And that was the goal. Imagine that. <laughs> um, I love that game. Okay, I think so back great. to the question of like age and... Yeah. And whether the game industry is based off of uh, an ideology that's l that's losing, hopefully. I think it's complex. There's a lot of factors that go into games as a as a economic industry. Um, and my fa one of my favorite books about this is Carly Kosurek's book Coin Operated Americans, um, where she talks about in great detail like some of the first violent video violent video games that came out and there was some controversy like ghost race came out hilarious low res game about like you're driving a car and your job is to literally hit people and there was some like outrage about it even though they're like little stick figures on screen right um but she points out something really important which is that all of that outrage actually sold more copies of games so the kind of companies like uh like rockstar games and grand theft auto like every news story that comes out that's like look how awful this game is it's just more more attention for that game and sells more copies of that games um another book that we look at in that class that i love that i think answers this question is anna anthropy's book rise of the video game zinesters um, she describes the genre of most games as men shooting at things um, and she describes the problem as the problem of insularity that if there's like a small insular group of people that's basically the ones making the games they're making those games for themselves or selling those games themselves so in many cases it's been like white men making these games that entertain them selling them to white men and then providing this feedback loop that's like oh well we saw call of duty sell millions of copies let's make another one right and the people that get interested in the games the ones that like the game that was the violent game and so it kind of perpetuates yeah. itself yeah what do you what do you think about about violence as a part of people um it is i think it is part of most people um but hopefully it's something that we can work against something that i'm interested in lessening is is that a prescription you would assign to humans i wouldn't assign any prescription to humans there's an infinite diversity of humans okay so how do you how do you how do you balance that the this infinite definition of humans and not a judgment of assignment, but also this critique of violence. How do you put those together? Um, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm thinking that critique of violence and video games, I'm thinking about like my everyday context and this country and this city and the effects and the fact that we live in a country that has mass shootings almost every single day. And then we have this huge industry where people are fantasizing, pretending to do mass shootings. Glorifying it. Every single day. Yeah. And selling millions of copies of that, of, of let's pretend that we're doing mass shootings. And then, oh, why do we have all these mass shootings? Oh, I don't know. Maybe those two things are related. Um, and let's go to another I question. think about proportionality, you know, like Anna Anthropy says that too. Like 
if we think about games as an art form, right, as potentially one of the greatest art forms, maybe going forward, right? Then you have no skin in the game there, though. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Anna Anthropy says. Um, if we think about them as an art form and think about like, well, aren't isn't part of what art forms do is like represent the broad broadness of the human experience? <laughs> and to date, what we've seen from video games is a very tiny slice of the human experience, yeah. running around with a machine gun shooting people. There's a large representation of that. It's a very small representation of games about your child dying or your dad dying. That's a that's an experience everybody has. Well, the second one. Um, a lot of people have. So, you know, just proportionally, why do we see so much of this one thing when we could have more games about like dealing with addiction, love stories, breakup stories, all kinds of other things. And they do exist, of course. Yes. They're just not in that mass area that, that we see the, the violent ones. Yeah. Another question from this side? Oh, oh let's go over here and then we'll do you next. Is that cool? And you have no mic? Okay. It's off until I point to you. So go ahead there and we'll, sorry. Thanks. Hi, I'm Bailey. I just wanted to ask when it comes to art, especially just the effect that it can have, how do you try to make art that either wears, makes awareness or like in the case for the trans border, um, immigrant tool, like direct action towards social issues, especially. And like, I guess the effectiveness of such art in like the two different contexts. Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate that a lot. Um, so, um, so a lot. Of, I feel like a lot of what I learned from working on the transborder immigrant tool was this idea of art as direct action. So, direct action is a kind of protest where instead of holding a sign and asking the president to stop the war, you might like go to the gates of the military base and lay down and try to actually do what you can to impede the functioning of the war machine, right? Um, so I, so with the transborder immigrant tool, I saw that as us trying to do something more like direct action. Instead of being like, let's interview immigrants talking about thirst and make a documentary video about that and raise awareness, that we might actually try to ask the question, like, what can we actually do to make them safer? Let's try to make that technology that might make people safer more directly. Um, so a lot of my work has continued that trajectory of trying to actually build safety for people. So I worked on a project called Local Autonomy Networks, where um, there was a big part of what my book is about and my dissertation was about, um, where I made this clothing that were networked so electronic clothing with electronics in them to build like local safety networks but the important part of that project again was i feel like the conversations um, but again i was trying to make them concretely about safety so i did workshops in different cities and performances where i talked to people about like okay sure i, I made this cool speculative electronic hoodie <laughs> with a wireless transmitter in it but it's really expensive mostly people said this to me but it's too expensive um, so what could we actually do in this workshop to make you safer? And in this hoodie, the idea would be that you had a group of people that were, would support you in what yeah. was needed. So if you were in danger, you could activate it and the, that network would be activated to come to you to help assist. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah. Um, but so I feel like, so then in the workshops, um, you know, we had real conversations about like, what could we do in this room on a daily basis that might actually help you be safer? Like. If we're thinking about prison abolition, if we're thinking about the way cops often inflict more violence on women, women of color, people of color, trans people, when they are called 
then could we have an agreement in this room that if something bad happens to me, I could call you or I could text you? Or who do you want me to call? If something terrible happens, do you want me to call the cops? Okay, I could. Or do you want me to call your mom or your brother or somebody else? Or could we even have an agreement that's like when we're walking home from class at nine o'clock at night and it's dark and scary and we might get assaulted, like, would you be the person that would walk with me? Um, so I was bringing that direct action sensibility into the workshop to try to like see what could we actually do today in this room to try to build safety. It's, it's interesting that sounds more scalable than uh, clothing that's manufactured to do that, that task. Yeah. Um, what do you think about solutions not being technical solutions? Um, yeah, I think there, I think Wendy Chun said there is no, there cannot be a technical solution to a social problem. Um, and I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, part of my, I think part of my role as an artist is to use my skills. A lot of them are technical, technological and, uh, to like highlight things to bring out discussion to try to make, build, make this change in the back. Yes. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Lauren. Nice to meet you. Um, thank you for everything you said and explained. Um, I wanted to ask about more like social and political organization in society and how um, like capitalism and gender roles kind of go hand in hand. And what do you picture a certain type of political or so social organization that we're going to move towards? Or do you think that we can achieve greater uh, like gender equality within capitalism? Um, uh, I, I agree that capitalism depends on exploitation of women and people of color. Uh, some people have called this moment we're in racial capitalism. Um, or Silvia Federici talks a lot about the exploitation of women as necessary. Or lots of people talk about the necessity of slavery for this country to even exist. Um, so do, yeah, I do want the end of capitalism. Uh, I, I'm not like, I don't have an alternative proposal right now. <laughs> um, I'm more thinking about like micro political change, short term change. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, capitalism is based on the idea of just endless growth and endless exploitation. And that is rapidly coming to an end. So um, I, I guess that's optimistic pessimism <laughs> or dystopian utopianism. Um, In the sense that you see capitalism as terminal because of the climate ever, change. Ever, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because of climate change. Um, I mean, my new project, Seen Soul, is a sci-fi story. It's set 60 years in the future because there was a UN report that says that there's only 60 years left of like growable soil on which we could grow food left if we continue with the current um, rate of temperature change. And like that report was a blip. Like there was very little even news coverage of this report that came out. And to me, it was stark. Um, so I do think that this time, you know, some of my, like that project, some of my other, like my game Redshift and Portal Metal is, you know, speculating on this near future of like, what are we gonna do? we have to leave this planet, um, which is, I think is mostly a ridiculous fantasy. Thank, really, you for, thank you for saying that. A really bad fantasy. Like what people say that they want to go to Mars, like you're yeah. going to destroy that planet too and just keep going on destroying planets. That right. sounds great. Right. And if you can terraform Mars to make it work for humans, why don't we start here? <laughs> like, not, it's not modified, so it's not viable for humans. 
Um, we have probably time for one more question. I'm Liv, um, and I was wondering, we started this class off with a breathing exercise, and um, I was wondering what role does mindfulness play in your day, and if it does, how does it incorporate itself into your art? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I, I meditate. <laughs> I have for many years. Um, and my relationship to it has changed over time a lot. Um, but I think breath is a really amazing technology. <laughs> and that taking three deep breaths can, you know, change how you're feeling, circulates your blood, changes your outlook, your attitude quickly, um, if you're really doing it. And I was thinking also about Adrienne Marie Brown and pleasure activism. I think in the beginning of that book, she encourages the reader to pause and take three deep breaths before reading the book. Um, yeah. But I also think that breath, it's been a big part of my recent work. So Seen Soul is a project about climate change and wildfires and wildfire smoke. And my experience of living through what many people here have lived through, which is smoke, what the media is calling smoke storms now, or just, you know, smoke covering the sky and filling the air with ash for weeks at a time. And uh, growing up, I had asthma. And in that project, I'm thinking about like this feeling of not being able to breathe as like the, the, the meeting point, the intersection of personal trauma and environmental trauma. Um, so a lot of those poems are about different kinds of breathing and uh, fast breathing, short breathing, panting, and using an inhaler. Um, and yeah, I like the, I like that, that idea of the intersection between environmental and personal and breathing that spot. Yeah. Trying to work for a future where we can all breathe. Misha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Art of Change is a production of the Arts Division of UC Santa Cruz. Engineering, editing, and theme song by Eric Mack. Research and production assistant, Maggie Hoogs. This podcast is hosted and produced by Lyle Troxell, a maker, podcaster, and software engineer working for Netflix. To learn more about the Arts Division at UC Santa Cruz, visit arts.ucsc.edu. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs>